And he had this line that he used all the time. And he'd say, look, the three most important things on an astrophotography system. Number one is the mount. Number two is the mount. Number three is the mount. How to mount your telescope is one of the most important considerations any amateur astronomer faces. And it can be a rather daunting and confusing situation when you're trying to figure out what's best for you and your telescope. Well, in this episode, Dustin and I sit down and talk to you about all sorts of things related to mounting your optical tube assembly. We will introduce you to the types of mounts and what characteristics to look for in a mount and why they're so important in this episode. Before I start the episode, I just wanted to say that this episode was live streamed on the Clear Skies Network Twitch channel, which I would encourage you to subscribe to if you'd like to interact with us while we're streaming. We can ask, answer questions and we can talk with you about all sorts of fun things while we're streaming. So I would highly recommend going over to twitch.tv slash clearskiesnetwork and giving us a quick sub. We would certainly appreciate it. All right, so let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. All right, everybody, welcome back. Today in this episode, Dustin and I are going to chat with you about mounting your telescope. <laughs> and regardless of how that sounds, what we mean is we are talking about putting an optical tube assembly <laughs> on a device that counteracts the rotation of the Earth. What else would I be talking about? Okay, what else would I be talking about? <laughs> are you there dustin Help i don't me out, even man. know I'm, what I'm to dying. say man yeah another episode here we go <laughs> <laughs> mounting your telescope by dustin and tony okay i like how you put my name first like i had any part of that <laughs> okay yes well seriously though when you are looking at to either purchase a telescope or uh or uh whether it's for imaging or for observing uh, visually, the mount is, in my opinion, every bit as important, if not more important, than what you choose for an optical tube assembly. And the reason I say that is that optical tube assemblies are getting so great now by the the Apo refractors that we're seeing. Certainly, the, a lot of the refractor telescopes, the the Maxitovs and the and the uh, Richie Critton. Uh, designs all of them superb telescopes off the shelf what makes them outstanding and is the mount that they're sitting on whether they are mounted correctly and we're going to talk about why that's a big deal and i would even go so far as to say it's more important than the optical tube assembly you picked what do you think this you know we had uh we have who's still a dear friend of mine um Larry, uh, he is, he's with the company Plane Wave. He was with OPT uh, over a decade and he used to tell everybody, I remember being in the building and I'd hear him pick up the phone and people would always ask the same question, which was, you know, what telescope should I, should I buy when I'm getting started? And he had this line that he used all the time and he'd say, look, the three most important things on an astrophotography system, number one is the mount, 
Number two is the mount. Number three is the mount. <laughs> and he would say that every day, it. man. I've heard it so many times. And, um, you know, it's it's funny, but it's true. And it's not the thing that people want to hear because it's not the most fun thing to buy. You know, it's not the most fun thing for most people, at least, to research like the telescopes and the cameras. They're kind of like that that fun part, especially for photographers, because it's the camera and the lens. You know, and so it's fun and it's more of what we've been trained to look at. We know more about the specs and it's a little more uh, like it's easier to understand, I think, to go from photography to astrophotography and to research those pieces. But now there's this new piece, the mount, where you have to have this this, uh, you know, this object that can carry, you know, a certain capacity. So you have to understand how much your stuff weighs and then you have to understand its tracking capability. It has to, you know, rotate the exact rate. The earth is moving, but in the opposite direction, which is literally its its function um, to stop the apparent motion of the sky as the earth spins. And it is so incredibly important, but I think it's still one of the least understood aspects of astrophotography. It's generally the thing that most people know the least about, because I think it's just a little bit further from what you're forced to learn when doing photography. You're always, you know, most people start by learning their cameras and learning their lenses. So they learn about F ratio, you know, aperture, all this stuff, but there's really no need until you get into astrophotography to understand the finer details of mount technology. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today, right? That's right. And you can, with, with the kinds of optical systems and the cameras that are out there, uh, you can, you, you certainly need to understand things like exposure times and focal ratios and pixel scale and all of those things that are important to getting a good image, but you can make a lot more mistakes, uh, with, uh, with that part of the imaging process and recover in, in post-processing. But it doesn't matter how good you've done all of that stuff uh, on your optical system and camera setup if your mount is no good because you cannot correct in software after the fact a bad, a poorly taken image that doesn't track properly or is, he's got all kinds of uh, uh, jiggle errors and and these are these are technical terms by the way jiggle jiggle error is uh is something you know <laughs> you that are Got that the old jiggle for. error in my system uh, again yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well i said my right elbow too it's like it must be gonna rain soon but yeah 14 it's, arc it's... seconds <laughs> jiggle error but you can't you can't fix that stuff you can't take that stuff out if you've got a tracking yeah. error star trails or 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 zigzaggy images because of periodic error you have you can't really correct that very well so it's good to get yeah. this right the first time and it's true that you can take a decent camera and a decent telescope and put it on a phenomenal mount and get great images but the reverse is not true you could put a hundred thousand dollar camera and telescope system on a bad mount and every image is going to be unusable you know, and so it is it is very, very important. And I would agree with what he used to say that the mount is really it's the foundation of your system and everything should be built around that, not the other way around. It shouldn't be built around the camera. It shouldn't be built around the tel uh, telescope necessarily, unless you have a very particular shot in mind and you know exactly the focal length or F ratio that you're going after. Um, I think most people really should start with the mount. Because it's, it's how often you can use it is going to be determined by, you know, things like portability, how, you know, like for you, you know, we just sent you that 20 inch Dob 
Tony. You, <laughs> yep. That thing is not portable. So we were just talking about how often you could take that to a local, you know, city or to a, you were talking about bringing it to a brewery. Sure. But you can't do that every day because it's just, it's too big. It's not portable. It's not practical to bring a seven foot tall telescope down the street. You know, and uh, whereas people that are building their system from the ground up with a, spe- a specific purpose in mind, starting with the mount, that's going to be the heaviest piece of equipment, you know, out that you own, then that's a really good place to start as the foundation of how are you going to be using this and what's your intention? And um, yeah, I mean, I think there are a ton of different options and the people that do this are rewarded for this decision every single time they take the equipment out. Yeah. Um, if you can, if you could give a lot of thought and budget to the mount first, you won't regret the spent the, that decision because Absolutely it will not. pay for itself many times over. Um, at its most basic, a bound a mount will hold the optical tube assembly that you bought the telescope itself. What there are different kinds of mounts. There are manual ones like that can be basically a, a tripod with something. Uh, like a fork on it that you can move around in altitude and azimuth. Those are the simplest. And then you can have some with clock drives on them. And the clock drives, as Dustin said earlier, counteract the rotation of the Earth. And then there are different styles. There's alt azimuth mounts and there's polar aligned mounts. All of these uh, do different things but uh, in different ways, but they're all designed to keep an image, a star, an object in your eyepiece while the earth turns for several hours. So that's what a mount is supposed to do. And what you're going to use a telescope for will largely determine, along with your budget, what you end up getting. Now, if you've got a relatively smaller telescope, like uh, some of these like four-inch APOs or things like that, or even some of the uh, some of the compound telescopes like Schmidt-Cassegrain's and the and the RC telescopes, you can get away with a smaller mount uh, that is also very portable. And some of them are quite sophisticated, like they have go-to capabilities. These are this is a term that people use, and this is for beginners, where if you don't know where something is in the night sky, a go-to mount will learn where it is. Uh, under the sky when it is what day it is and then it will start finding things for you you don't have to know anything about it you just punch it into a computer or a hand pad that's a go-to telescope yeah go to saturn right and you punch it in saturn and then there it goes you watch the telescope move it's almost like reverse gps it's like there it goes you watch it move and then when you go look in the eyepiece there's saturn and yeah go to really makes it easy and it's um it's almost one of those things that i feel like some people are against because they're like, well, if you do that, you're not going to learn the night sky, you yeah, know, and, and I can, do that. Yeah, I can see what they're saying, because a Dobsonian that isn't go to, it really forces you to learn where things are. And that's that's pretty cool. But um, I don't think that it makes a lot of sense to say, well, we have this, you know, this technological advantage that can help you enjoy the hobby more with less effort or less nights out where you're not getting to maximize your equipment because you're, you haven't, you know, met this threshold of knowledge yet. Um, I don't think that it's a very good argument. It's like saying, you know, if, if our cars were like the Flintstone cars, you know, we would get a lot better cardio and it's really good for heart health (laughs) and better gas mileage. Yeah. It's better gas mileage. It's better in a lot of ways. I just really am against using vehicles that are powered. You know, and it's like, you know, sure, sure. But it's not a very good argument. 
Flintstones car. I love it. <laughs> I'm surprised you. I'm surprised you know about the Flintstones. Actually, that seems to be way before your time. But uh, that's good. Cool. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so and there is one other that one other style of mount that I should mention that Dustin alluded to with Dobsonians, and that is basically an altitude azimuth mount. That it looks like a uh, a, a tube that's been put on top of a box. They're very simple looking telescopes. One look at them and you know how the mount works. You just swivel it around and move the, the tube up and down. And that is a mount. It's a very simple mount. And it's one that yeah, you I have to them. manually, you have to manually push the, the optical um, uh, tube around to keep the star in the field of view. But that is a style of mount. So um, what do you think, Dustin, uh, would be, Let's talk to beginners first. Someone comes into the store and they want uh, a decent telescope um, that has some of these mount capabilities. What what sort of characteristics that you point them towards? Yeah, and so we we really are starting here at true beginner, where you're right. learning the vocabulary, and that's right. you've already mentioned a few words that I think we might take for granted. That there's no reason to know these words unless you're in this hobby or something very similar, like uh, equatorial. Altaz, you know, like, like when mm -hmm. are people doing anything with mounts that like most people understand tripod for photography, they understand like a tripod gives the camera stability and that stability rewards the image with better sharpness. So you carry a tripod out there, you set it down and it gives you something to put the camera on. A mount is just a tripod that moves. That's it. That's all. It, that's all it's only function is to hold everything stable, but also counteract the rotation of the earth because that makes the sky look like it's moving. So if you move the opposite direction at the same rate, it makes the sky look like it stops so that you can take a longer photo. And that's that's really the function of a mount or you can track the objects across the sky, right? That's the other function. So I think that starting there and then learning the different types, that's, that's where everybody should begin because the first thing you're going to do when you start looking for a mount is you're going to see that some are altas, and then some are equatorial. That's categories, you know, subcategories number one. So you have mount as the top category. Subcategory A and B would be Altaz equatorial. And let's start there because Altaz didn't mean anything to me when I got into the hobby. All it means is left, right, up, and down. And so it moves on those axis, axes. And so you can turn it left and right. And you can turn it up and down. And if you think about it, you want to point something anywhere in the sky. As long as you can move left and right and up and down, you can point it to wherever it is you want to look in the sky. And um, equatorial, <laughs> this is how I describe it to the team, but equatorial is just left, right, up, down, tilted back a little bit, laid back in a recliner. It really is the same thing. It's just you're tilting it back at the same to whatever latitude you're at so that it's tilted at the earth's axis, right? So to the, um, you're pointed at Polaris, you're on the polar axis so that as the earth is rotating, you don't have that, um, you don't have rotation in the sky because you're actually tilted the same way the earth is tilted to the polar axis. And so it's still moving the same way, but that tilting causes a very interesting thing to happen when you try to control it. Um, if you're not used to it, being, you know, tilted back equatorially, it's very hard to grasp the first couple times you do it, um, how the movement will work. And so with Altaz, it's very natural. Like everybody, everything we do moves left, right, or up and down. 
And so it's very natural. And you get it something like a Dobsonian, literally zero learning curve. You know, you go outside and it's like Tony just said, you just point it. It moves left, right. Yeah. It moves up and down. You just point it at whatever you want to see and it moves the way you think it will. But yeah, because you can't walk that. up. Yeah, exactly. But because you can't walk up to an equatorial mount and just swing it to the right or swing it to the left because it's tilted back on that axis, it takes some, some you know, really, you got to get used to this new idea that this thing is laid back at 30 degrees or 40 degrees or whatever it is, right? It's, it's a little bit different. Yeah, the, uh, the equatorial mount adds a different layer of complexity to what you're trying to do. It needs to be aligned to the polar, the, the north polar axis uh, rotation. A altazimuth mount does not need to be polar aligned, so you don't have to worry about that. That's why they tend to be really good uh, beginner telescopes. You can just do what Dustin says. You just move it around and point it. But an equatorial mount to be used properly and not to make it harder for yourself needs to be polar aligned, and that's a layer that you need to consider. Why would you want one over the other? Well, the real difference in my opinion, and you can correct me if you've got a different uh, opinion about this, Dustin, but sure. the real difference is that if you're an imager and if you're going to be looking at something for a really, really long time and you've got this really nice altazimuth mount that is tracking the stars for you, you're going without polar alignment, you're going to get something called field rotation. That means that the stars will slowly turn, uh, rotate a little bit uh, as the earth turns because you're not correcting for both axes you're only correcting for i mean you're not correcting for any axes you're just watching this rotate the rotation of the stars go by a polar aligned mount will not have that rotation in it so and that matters if you've got say like what dustin does a lot which is take hour long and and longer images that becomes an issue you need to uh, fix that with an equatorial mount well it's a really it's a really interesting concept that you don't you don't think about until you're actually out there imaging, but with an Altaz mount that moves left, right, up, and down, you think about it, that's not the motion of the stars. I mean, everybody's watched the moon track across the sky, and so let's let's replicate this for a second. We know that the stars move across the sky in an arc, right? So it's not a straight line. It's an arc across the sky. Same thing with the sun. You see it arc down to the west and you see it coming up on the east but it follows this arc across the sky and it's hard to comprehend with something like the moon because it's a circle but let's change the shape just to understand what's happening okay let's make it let's make it a triangle for a second and we're going to color the top of the triangle a different color so the top of the triangle is red and so we're going to take a picture of it as it comes up. And when it's coming up on the left side of the arc, we can see that that triangle is pointed to the left and that that red tip is at the top and the left. And then when it gets to the very top of its arc, now the triangle is straight up and down and the top, the, the tip, that red tip is pointed straight up. But then as it arcs down, you can see that the tip starts to lean to the right and now all of a sudden, you know, the whole it's the complete opposite of where it started when it was coming up. And that's the nature of things moving in an arc. Just because, you know, these things are circular doesn't mean that they're still not changing their orientation as they move across the sky. But think if you took an image of it when it's on the left side of the sky, and you took an image when it's on the west side of the sky. And now you've got you're trying to stack those two images. You see how they're not the same shape. 
because you've got, you know, the red side is on the top left when you're on the east of the sky. And then it's the red, the red tip is on the top right when you're on the other side of the sky. So you try to stack those. It's not going to line up. And that's rotation. What's happening is it's rotating across that arc. And that's why you have an equatorial mount is that you're on that polar axis so that the mount is actually moving in the same arc that the stars are. And so whatever orientation, wherever you point to, you're going to move in the same arc that the stars are. And so no matter where you are, you can stack and combine those images without any rotation in the image. So why should you get one over the other? What What's the difference between one over the other? Well, if you're an imager and you're going to take long exposure images, then the equatorial mount makes a whole lot more sense because you don't have, you can minimize this field rotation. If you're not going to take super long exposure images, you can still image quite nicely with a driven Altaz mount. You just can't take really long exposures. How, how long would you say an exposure could be for an unrotated um, well, software gives you a huge advantage um, because right. It'll you know do the you can do for you. Yeah, you can do some derotation in the software. You just give up the edges of the image, um, right. and then you can have tools like derotators. That's how you know some of the most premium mounts out there actually all Taz to save space in an observatory. Um, but you know they have motors that actually turn the camera as it moves to counteract that. Um, but in general, here's here's the rule of thumb. If it's for visual, Altaz pretty much wins all the time. If it's yeah. for imaging, Equatorial pretty much wins in every scenario, unless you are in the extreme high end that you're going to use other tools, very expensive tools to correct that rotation. And the reason is that Altaz moving left, right, up and down allows the eyepiece to always be in a very convenient location. Equatorial does not. So imagine having a refractor on an equatorial mount that's tilted back, and then you try to point straight up at Zenith. You will literally have to lay on the ground to look through the eyepiece. Whereas with Altaz, the eyepiece is always, you have, you know, what's called a diagonal. It makes the eyepiece come out at a right angle. And the eyepiece is always in a place where you just lean into it and you look. You're never on the ground. You're never trying to, you know, get into these awkward positions to try to look through it. Um, it's just very convenient with alt azimuth. Right. And so just, uh, just before we leave this, let me just ask you this though, with an alt mount and you're doing imaging, which you can still do, how long of an exposure do you think you could take before you start to see little arcs in the image? Let's say you don't have any derotation at all. How long of an exposure oh. could you take? Uh, I don't, couple, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know the a answer. I've never tried minutes it. or so. Yeah, a few minutes you could get away with for sure. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't push the images into the, you know, an hour or anything like that. Um, you know, I'm sure people do, but again, they have other ways of compensating. Um, so I think that, you know, it's just in general, you just avoid the problem altogether because you're going to like things are moving all the time. It never the universe never stops for you to take your photo. Right. And the earth doesn't stop spinning. So you're always going to have that motion all the time. And because of that arc, no matter what it is you're shooting, you you know that you would have had, even if you do that, let's say you do 10 minutes, you know for sure you would have had a sharper image had you been equatorial. Because there's some level of rotation no matter how long you're going, because nothing stopped at any point. And so it's just like, why not, if you know you're going to be doing the majority of your time imaging, then get the tool that's designed for imaging. And then you can use it 
for the other function. Like you can say, I'm going to use my imaging mount and do visual. You can, but you sacrifice that level of comfort because you know, okay, the thing that I'm going to use it for the least is visual. So I'll just be uncomfortable when I do visual, but the thing I use it for most is imaging. Then it's going to perform really, really well for the thing I'm primarily using it for. And then the other is true too. If it's mostly going to be visual and you're just going to do imaging from time to time, like you, Tony, you got the right thing, man. Alt as yeah. all the way, yeah. and then just deal with the rotation because you're not trying to take a pods. You just want to enjoy both sides of the hobby. But most of the time you're going to, We've okay. So we've talked about out uh, out out azimuth mounts. We've talked about equatorial mounts. What they each what each one does, and why whether or not you're going to be using it for primarily for imaging or for observe or visual observing is also really important. But one thing all mounts must have is they they must also be sturdy, and that can be relative, right? That can be relative. If all you've got is a uh, a four inch telescope with uh, maybe a few eyepieces or a camera on the back of it, you don't need to buy something that weighs a hundred pounds uh, to to mount it on. But it does need to be sturdy enough so that when the tripod or the the legs are extended or the pier or whatever it's on and the 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 equatorial head or the 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 mounting the mounting mechanism that connects the optical tube assembly to the tripod, whatever that is, needs to be sturdy and it needs to move as, smooth, as smoothly as possible. And the reason for that is, and this will be surprise you if you've never used telescopes very much, is that a poorly mounted telescope that's very wobbly on its legs and you're trying to look through a telescope or through the eyepiece with it, everybody that walks by that telescope or a, a, a slight breeze or a car driving down a driveway or the, the road, you know, just a few hundred feet away, you will see those vibrations if you have a poorly uh, mounted telescope. So it must be sturdy. And that's where the expense generally comes in. Although, and Dustin is in a great position to comment on this, a lot of the off-the-shelf stuff that is small and lightweight and portable is pretty darn sturdy. So there's a lot of choices oh, yeah. that you can get, but just want to make sure that you want, if you see a telescope, you shake it a little bit with on the tripod and it's a little bit wobbly, run away from it. <laughs> what you want is something that's firmly attached to the ground and that has knobs that when you un loosen them and tighten them, they move smoothly. And the, all the working mechanisms that can turn and twist are as smooth as they can be. And those are the things you want to look for in your first mount. And there's a ton of really great stuff out there to do that with. Yeah. Somebody, somebody right now that's going to be getting into the hobby, just got distracted during that part when you were saying that, and they're going to learn that lesson the way we did the hard way, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, their dog just, their dog just ran by and it's going to cost them a lot of frustration by missing that part. Um, that's right. But, yeah. but yeah, it's true. You don't appreciate how much is going on around you until you're, um, undermounted so your mount just can't hold the capacity of whatever it is you're doing or you have a mount that just has too much play in it it has too much movement in it once that happens you'll notice that like you mentioned a car driving by a couple hundred feet away there's a speed bump in one of my friend's neighborhoods that is several hundred feet away and when trucks go over that thing you you can't like you can't look through the telescope because that comes through the telescope and everything just shakes like crazy and you don't realize how like even things that far away can affect it if you're not mounted uh, properly. You know, you don't have something that's super rigid that can handle that and can handle the weight of the system. 
Um, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of movement here and this stuff can be pretty heavy at times. And so you think about how much inertia is at play and then sending vibrations through the system. There's a lot that can go wrong. And so, especially when things are slewing and other things, I mean, you want to make sure that you have the capacity and that's like, that's the vocabulary, the next vocabulary word that you'll see when looking at mounts is they all have a capacity attached to them. And that's how much the, um, the telescope or the, I'm sorry, the mount can actually handle for whichever job it is that it's meant to do, whether visual or imaging. Yeah. And that's, you still get that kind of vibration when the mount is mounted the tripod or whatever it is on the ground itself. And that's another very key component. If you've never looked through a telescope before, you want your telescope on the ground. You don't want it up on a deck or uh, in the second story of your house, because then anybody who's walking on that deck is just going to end up driving you crazy because you're going to be seeing the, the image in the eyepiece just jiggle all over the place. So it needs to be on the ground. It's such a serious thing. I'll tell this quick story, but um, we do. We had to do a rescue operation for a, an observatory that was built for um, one of the the owners of a, a baseball team. You don't have to think too hard to think which baseball team has <laughs> astronomy attached to it. Um, but hmm. anyway, um, this In observatory Texas. they had built. And they they thought, you know, we're just going to put it on a second floor um, because, you know, it, it'll be cool. Like we can have this thing that's like way up there. And they didn't realize that attaching anything to that pier, exactly what you're talking about, vibration will travel through that stuff. And so even just having anyone in the building walking up that or moving around, if there's anything touching that pier... Every step you will see in the image or, you know, visually looking through the telescope. Same thing in our observatories. We had, um, this was, a, this was a funny, <laughs> a funny story, but one of my best friends in the world is the one that helped me build the first four observatories we did. His name's Charles and he's actually on the Twitch stream sometimes, but, um, the guy is just brilliant. The only reason that any of our stuff works is because he was part of it, but we had been out there and it was hot, man. We built these things in summer and we built them by hand. So we're out there digging in the sand and laying the foundations, all this stuff. And we were exhausted. So finally, the concrete truck shows up. Charles is there and he's like telling them to pour the concrete for the foundation. And you pour this huge concrete in the, you know, for the, the pier. And then um, you pour the concrete for the foundation and they're supposed to be separated so that no vibrations can travel into the pier and up into the telescope. And we were just so spent that Charles was like, they were like, well, what do you want us to do with all the extra concrete? He's like, well, if we got extra, we paid for it. Just fill it in. And so he filled in the whole thing thinking, you know, in, in that like, Hey, brain dead moment, because we were out in 120 degree heat for two months, he's sitting there and he, afterwards he calls me. He said, I am so sorry, but I need you to go rent some jackhammers. We just concreted <laughs> in the pier with the foundation of the building, which means every time wind hits the side of the building, all that vibration is traveling up into the telescope. Every time somebody That's opens right. a door or walks through there, anything moves, the whole building moves with the telescope now. So we had to jackhammer tons of concrete away from the pier to isolate it again. And it's that serious. You think that this stuff doesn't matter, 
but it it definitely <laughs> definitely does. <laughs> I mean, imagine any observatory you've ever seen pictures of. If you go inside, even though it looks like it's built in a building and it's surrounded by structure, if you go to where the pier is, wherever the pier is in that in that telescope inside that observatory, there is an isolation ring, a gap between yeah. where the teles- telescope is mounted and everything else because you yeah. the, it, that will just transfer over. And that is in every observatory in the world uh, except for this one. But then they made one, so <laughs> they yeah. had to make an isolation. It's, it's happened a lot. We've, <laughs> we've done a lot of rescue operations on observatories um, to go fix that kind of stuff. But, yeah, it, it happens a lot because it's just, again, when would you ever think about something like that unless you're really deep into this hobby? You know, and so, um, you know, That's people right. trying to put them on their roofs and all this stuff. And it's like you have to run that isolated from everything if it's going to be that that type of level that you're trying to do long exposure imaging, you know. Yeah, really wealthy people tend to want to do that. They want to have some kind of dome or something cool on top of their house. And you got to like, well, okay, fine. But you better have a pier going straight through your house that's going through the roof all the way through the house and down into hopefully bedrock uh, below it so that that thing stays isolated and can work. I mean, these the whole point of, of having these mounts be sturdy uh, is to prevent this vibration from being transferred. And so you have to be real careful of that. And that's also why... A lot of portable mounts, and I use that word loosely here, uh, are heavy because that weight helps to damp, dampen vibration. So um, I, one of the things I, I think I'd like to bring up, Dustin, if you agree, is let's maybe talk about some of the really good commercial mounts that are out there that are kind of not too expensive but uh, and, and relatively portable and, and, and uh, are good, good options for people. Do you want to try that? Sure. Yeah, let's, okay. let's dig in. Um, this uh, is where we get a little more into the weeds with all of this. Right, but um, right. let's start with the non-go-to options. And I'll tell you some of the, the experiences that I've had with mounts that I think are really, really excellent. Because the ones that, you know, I've, I've used a ton of mounts and our team has used a ton of mounts. But um, it's the ones that are great that I think are really worth mentioning here. Because that's those are the directions I feel like people should go if you want to avoid the pitfalls. You know? Um, and so... The, you start with a mount for something that's really simple. So no go-to, just like AA battery powered, no cables. You don't need a computer. I keep one of these all the time. I actually have one in here um, that is um, a star tracking mount for like Milky Way photography or just getting into deep space photography or for people that just want it to be really portable. I mean, we with Radian made a tripod specifically for this type of shooting um, because it's really common. I mean, how many Milky Way photos have you seen? These are the types of mounts that these are done on. And so one that I definitely have to um, give credit to here as being among the best is Skywatcher makes one called the Star Adventurer. This is the one that I use and it's it's relatively inexpensive. I think it's like somewhere 350-ish dollars up to 400 bucks. You have one. Yeah. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Yeah, well I'm showing it on the stream. You won't see it on the on the pot or here on the podcast, but yeah, these are these are awesome and they weigh just what a couple pounds. And look how so, small that is. I mean, it fits in the palm of your hand. Yeah, it just goes on top of a tripod and that does exactly the function we're talking about. You throw your camera, you like your DSLR, your mirrorless camera with a lens on it, and you're off and running and doing long exposure photography, seeing galaxies or, you know, nebulae in your images and and definitely things like the Milky Way. So, really really cool inexpensive and a great way to start. They do not have go-to. 
So it's not where you can just say, go to the North America Nebula, and then there it is. You know, it doesn't have that. You have to point it at things, but and you have to polar align it. So anything equatorial, you do have to polar align. That's right. But I think that one, and then Ioptron makes one called the Sky Guider Pro. Um, that one, again, it's probably the other most popular one. Um, really, really great and uh, super easy to use. That one, they even have one with iPolar, which is like uh, electronic polar alignment. Really, really cool. And I think that those, those two definitely are the most popular of that class of mount. Really lightweight, not meant to have a huge capacity, but and no go to, but just do the job that they're meant to do. Yeah, and they can also be special purpose. I bought this one for a PST uh, solar telescope that I have that uh, I just wanted to use it just for looking at the sun. Uh, so that's why I have it. So yeah, and it, when, you're right. Once it's polar aligned, it's good to go. I'll tell you one that I really like real quick, and that is I, I like the Celestron uh, Nexstar uh, five-inch uh, mount, uh, the one yeah. that they have with their five-inch model. I like that because... It's really lightweight. It's go-to, which means that you once you once it knows where it is in the sky, it'll find things for you. But it also has a combination of alt as mount. It's got that. You can use that as its default mode if you want. But it also has built in a little wedge, a little hinge that mm -hmm. lets you recline, like Dustin says, that lets you recline back in and, and point that point that fork arm toward the North Pole. And I really liked that feature a lot. And while the alignment procedure required that you know at least three stars, um, it wasn't that bad. You just had to pick some bright stars. You didn't even have to know what they were. You just had to go to a bright star, center it in the field of view of your eyepiece, and then move it to another star, center it in the eyepiece, and then what you really could do it with just two and then uh it would do a better job if you had three and then you were polar aligned you were it it knew it knew where everything was and you you could go to town with it so um it's yeah. a really good scope and i think highly of that that particular model it is it is for entry level kind of photography you know it doesn't have the best tracking capability um it's not really meant for long exposure astrophotography but for people that are getting into it that want again primary function is going to be visual, but you just want to test the waters with astrophotography. It's awesome. Like you said, yeah. it's really lightweight too. You know, you That's can carry that thing, thing anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I know. You can you carry fold it up the anywhere. thing and you're done. You're, you put it in your car and carry it around. Um, and you'll, you'll be able to take it to dark skies, which helps its performance. And so anyway, that's one of the ones I wanted to point out. I think it's really good. Yeah. Um, and then from there, people generally go up to the next level, um, you know, the 25 pound kind of capacity. Ioptron makes really, really great mounts in this realm. Um, Celestron makes one called the AVX. It's also extremely popular. Um, and there, there, there are a few, you know, people start there usually where they're like, all right, I, I still want to use the same camera, but I want to put a telescope on it. This would be something like with the new Radian Raptor, the 61 millimeter. This would be more than enough. For I mean, actually, those last two mounts we mentioned would handle that, but um, these would be more than enough and give you go-to and give you the whole astrophotography experience of doing long exposures. Um, so I think that that's that's where people usually go because they can get into it for under $1,000 and get a nice piece of equipment that's going to last a really long time. Um, some people skip that step 
and go right into their like, all right, I've done my Milky Way stuff or I just know I saw these photos and I'm addicted. That's kind of where I was like, I got to take these photos. So they just go right into a, a higher capacity mount where they're going to have more room later on. Um, you know, uh, buy ones, cry ones kind of thinking. You <laughs> I know? know. I love that saying. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, all right, well, I know I'm going to do this and it's more expensive, but I'm going to spend 1500 bucks or 2000 bucks and really get a mount that has more capacity. If I want to get a bigger telescope later, I can, but it's a little more future proofed. And that's where mounts like the Skywatcher EQ6R do extremely well, or some of the higher capacity Ioptron mounts, or, um, you know, there are a bunch, even all the way up to like Hobum mounts, you know, um, and, and that's where you have to kind of decide what level, what quality, what tracking do you feel like you need and what's your budget? Because it can get expensive in a hurry. You know, the difference between like an AVX at seven or $800 and a Hobum mount, you know, starting at $3,500 is significant, but one is literally professional grade and harmonic drives and the other is meant to be like the the stepping stone in astrophotography or just the ultra portable option for people you know that don't want to go spend thirty five hundred dollars or more you know and so yeah, when you're in when you're in that level of mount you're then the the issues become slightly different you're looking at things like tracking accuracy and all of that stuff becomes paramount yeah, yeah and that's <laughs> that's where you know i mean when you're getting into Software bisque mounts, astrophysics mounts, plane wave mounts, harmonic drive mounts like Hobum. That's where you know, like, all right, at this point, you're already kind of identifying as an imager. Like you, you're really spending time. You're really wanting to do this. And that's where that stuff really starts to matter. Like for me, the excitement now is pushing myself and really trying to get my best images. And so I don't want the equipment. I want to be the limiting factor. I don't want the equipment to be the limiting factor. And so that's why, to me, it's worth it to just buy the mount once, even if it's more expensive on the front end, you know it's the piece that will be the limiting factor in your images if you don't get something that just has like the best tracking capability to where when you're guiding, you're always sub arc second accuracy to where you know your images are not going to be limited by the mount's ability. It's all going to be your ability. And that's where that's really where you want to be. And that's that's why, you know, I use a lot of um, really high end mounts. But again, the mount is the thing that I think anybody that does a lot of imaging is going to tell you, put your money there first, because that's the thing that's going to make your images what they are. And there's always going to be a trade-off, right? You're always going to have a trade-off between portability and weight and all of these other things that Dustin was just talking about, the tracking accuracy and the professionalism and, and, the, and all of these things that you get with some of these high-end mounts. So you want to try and, well, sometimes you want to try and just get that envelope just right for your own needs. But uh, some of these mounts, I mean, they will, they will make your night under the stars <laughs> about as pleasurable as it could be. I mean, just moving some of these mounts, operating them, turning the knobs, moving the telescope from one spot to another is a delight. And you will use it every chance you get because this is where the engineering pays off is when your interaction with this telescope and it will all happen through the mount with the exception of the focuser and maybe the camera. But uh, the, these, these mounts that we're talking about uh, are really for people who've already drunk the Kool-Aid and they know 
that they're in this thing for life. So yeah, <laughs> yeah the Kool-Aid. Um, and yeah. so it's, it's definitely one of those things where, um, as you start using nicer mounts, you never look back because it's yeah. just like you said, your night is so much more enjoyable when you're looking at your guiding and it's just a, sh a flat line, just perfect. You know, every image you get is going to be so ridiculously sharp and that's what premium mounts do for you. Um, and I, and it doesn't have to be super expensive. I would say even mounts, like we just mentioned the EQ6R. I think that one off the top of my head, man, I, I don't have all the SKUs memorized, but I think that's somewhere in the range of $1,500. That mount is phenomenal. And some of the, I mean, people are taking APODs with that mount. You know, they're getting NASA APOD awards with that mount. So it doesn't have to be like go out and spend $10,000. Really what you end up paying for when you go into the bigger mounts, like $10,000 plane wave mount is capacity. You're going to be able to hold really big systems that, you know, you can hold multiple hundreds of pounds on some of these bigger mounts. And, um, you know, that's really what you're buying is when you want to get into a really big CDK or RC and just go after these super faint targets or an observatory class mount. That's where they get pretty expensive unless you're looking to bring observatory class portable. And those are the ones that I, I talk about all the time is because I'm like, the biggest fan of this idea, which is the most portable mounts right now are actually mounts that are, you know, the smallest, but they're still, they're very expensive because they're harmonic drives, but, you know, um, harmonic drives have this unbelievable torque and, you know, they don't have one of the two problems. So you have periodic error is a problem in mounts with gears and then backlash is another problem with mounts and gears. And the only one that they suffer from is periodic error, but because it's periodic, you can correct it out. It's predictable. And so you can correct that to where that problem is eliminated. And backlash is something that all geared mounts have that harmonic drives don't suffer from. But these mounts, because of their incredible torque, like my the one I use here has a 55 pound capacity. It can carry 55 pounds and it weighs 11. It weighs 11 pounds. So harmonic drives can carry five times their weight. And that's something that I think, you know, and they don't have to use counterweights if you're not using, if you're not maxing out the stuff. And so for me, like portability, not carrying around counterweights, not having to balance it like that. That's awesome, man. It's just some steps that's, eliminated. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's huge because counterweights by, by the word weight, you know, they add what they're, they're heavy. And so there's just one more thing you've got to lug around that makes uh, that makes your night a little bit more, uh, you know, of a workout. Right. Now, well, let me ask you this. So, of these, I'm glad you brought that the, the the portability issue up because of these class of mounts, the I don't know, say the 1500 to the 3000 or the Hobum mounts, those kind of things. How portable are they? Um, you so you've already said the the harmonic drive of the Hobum is pretty darn portable and lightweight, which is the best of everything. What about some so, of the others? Yeah. Are they pretty portable? So the Hobum is the same size as the tracker that you just held up. So the smallest Hobum is the same size as that, but it's the, you know, the same tracking capability as anything that you'd see in an observatory. So it's really, really small. I think it weighs four pounds, five pounds, something mm -hmm. like that, you know, so really, really small. When you get into the other mounts, generally they are going to um, weigh a lot closer to what their capacity is. And so at best, you're going to see it be like one to two. So if a mount say weighs like 30 pounds, 35 pounds, it can generally carry like 50, you know, and that would be really good. 
Um, it's only because of the nature of harmonic drives where you can get into the five times its weight kind of stuff. Um, you know, but it's not, it's not one of those things where you're going to be able to go out and get a 10 pound mount that's normal gearing that can carry, you know, 50 or 60 or hundred pounds or anything like that. It's going to be right. a close to what they weigh, relatively close to what they weigh. Um, best case scenario is generally about half of what they weigh. So 25 pounds, maybe you can get away with 50 on some really nice mounts. Yeah. And on a German equatorial, at least you have to also then worry about the weight that will go on the other side of that yeah, telescope exactly. to balance it. So that'll add a lot to it as well. You have but, to And all of that affects them. portability. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have to counterweight them um, to make sure that you keep the strain off the gears as this thing's moving around. And that means exactly you have to carry around some additional weights and they're heavy and it's yeah. another step in the process. But look, I mean, this is just part of it. Most uh, 99% amounts require counterweights and they always have and it's not going away anytime soon. There are only a couple of types of mounts that don't. So while we wrap up this podcast, I want to ask you, so we've, we've gone through the whole journey of mounts and what they do and the, and the things to look out for. What's your favorite? If you had to pick a mount, what's your best mount out there that you love the most? Um, I, I really love my Hobel mounts, the, the harmonic drive stuff, because I, you know, they're not the ones I use in my observatories. I use software bisque mounts in the observatories. Um, and those, those I've had there for a long time, actually before the Hobel mounts came out. Uh, but the Hobel mounts is what I use at home. I have three Hobel mounts here at home. And the reason I like it is because I like being out under the stars. If they're remote observatories, I found that plane wave mounts are absolutely just unbelievable. Um, those are direct drives, so they don't have any, any of the gearing. They're, you know, magnetic. They're driven by magnets, so they don't have any backlash, any periodic error. They're incredible. Um, the software bisque mounts are, you know, made in the United States. AP mounts made in the United States. Some of these are the best mounts ever, and they have a reputation for being flawless. And they, they are really, really good. These are all, I mean, we're talking ultra premium mounts right now, by the way. Yeah, yeah, but, state, state of the art. But what I like about the Hobum is that I can throw it in my backpack along with my lenses, you know, and all this stuff and just go in my tripod weighs that, that holds it weighs four pounds and I can just bring everything with me and go. And it gets me out because I find even something small, like if I have to pack around counterweights, it's just one more thing that makes me hesitate on whether or not I want to go through all of the effort that night. And maybe I'm being super lazy there, but it's like, you know, sometimes you're, you're tired or whatever. You've had a long day and, you know, you're, you want to go image because you're excited, but you're just like, man, it's one more thing to do. It's another step. It's another thing to carry. It's another thing to pack, travel with, you know? And so I love that they don't require the step of me balancing them. I don't have to put on counterweights or counterweight shaft. Um, and they have polar scope, uh, electronic polar scope tools, uh, mounting brackets built in. So you throw the electronic polar scope on there. And it even does that step for you, man. So it's just like, I really like that. I understand that not everybody's going to want it, especially if you're testing the waters. It's probably not wise to go out and spend $5,000 or $6,000 on a mount, no. you know? Um, and I didn't start with those. I started with the ones, like I was saying, that were $800 and, you know, $1,000. And and you have great experiences. But the counterweight piece for me was huge. And a lot more people now are going in on that first Hobo mount. It's called the Traveler. They are going in on that. Um, anybody that's interested in looking at them, they're called H-O-B-Y-M. 
Hobum. And uh, I mean, they're they're all over our website. You'll see them a lot there. They're pretty popular anymore. But a lot of people are just saying, you know what, I just want to be one and done. And so they they buy those mounts now and and travel with them and stuff. But I think those are great. And I really like the EQ6R because it's accessible, you know, 1500 bucks. I really like that. And I see great results with it. My buddy, uh, Trevor, you know, he, he talks about it all the time. Astro Backyard. And look at his images. Like they're so ridiculously good. And he didn't have to go spend 3500 or $5,000 to get them. So I like that a lot too, you know, but there are a lot of great mounts out there. Those are just two that come to mind. Which is more state of the art, the the uh, Hobum mounts or the plane wave mounts, the direct drive, the magnetic ones? They're two different monsters. Um, direct drive, <laughs> direct drive Which pushes wins. The yeah, direct drive wins on everything other than portability. Um, you know, but they're so. I mean, we're talking about they're so close that your your tracking is going to be better than your seeing conditions. So does it matter? No, not at all. It's not going to show in your image because your the sky above you is worse than the tracking mount. Um, but plane wave mounts are not portable. These are observatory mounts, and they're meant to be in an, in an observatory. Hobo mounts are meant to be observatory class out in the field. So they're two completely good, different kind of approaches. Yeah, that's a good distinction, and uh, and yeah, that's but but it's sort of a statement about where we are in this hobby now. Professional grade stuff is available to uh, routinely now uh on the on the amateur astronomy market so so yeah. this is a great time to be uh getting out there and and learning how to use some of these telescopes i one of the things we didn't mention that i want to make sure we do mention in the class of mounts that we've been talking about especially the 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 ones that have clock drives on them that counteract the earth's rotation there are generally two styles of those one of them is a fork mounted that's where you'll see something like celestron will have fork mounts with an optical tube assembly in the center and then you'll have the german equatorial which dustin mentioned earlier i wanted to bring up the fork mount because they tend to be smaller in size and you're able to put them in a case and travel around with them it's all one unit usually usually it's the optical tube assembly the fork is attached and the clock drive all and you just put that on a tripod of some beefiness and so they tend to be a lot more portable as well i just wanted to point that out because german equatorial mounts have been around forever but they're a little bit ungainly they're a little bit kind of you got to work with them counterweights all that stuff is involved uh so i just wanted to make sure i mentioned those two styles of mounts as well i think we've after that i think we've covered most of it yeah and you know what's funny when you when you talk about my favorite mounts man i probably should mention that if anyone asks me which mount do i use the most it might still be my Star Adventurer, the one that you just lifted up. You know, the mm -hmm. little $400 mount. I still use that thing, um, man, probably 100 times a year. I use that thing all the time. And, just no uh, beating it. No, I mean, There's I no just... Beating. I talk about the double A experience. It's tough to beat a double A experience where there's just no cables. There's nothing. You go out there and sometimes you don't care to go out and get the best image in the world. Sometimes you just want to go out and be under the night sky and have something that's just easy and just fun to be out with, you know? And so I grab that because it's so light. It's so portable. You can leave it on the tripod, plop it down, throw a camera on there, and you're off and running in 20 seconds. I love that, man. I use it all the time. There's no... There's no beating the ease of use and portability. I mean, those two things will make you will go out and use it. If all you've yeah. got to do is grab and go, man, you're going to do that. Other than looking at a hundred pound telescope, going, I'm not so sure, man. Maybe I'll stay yeah, inside yeah. And, and exactly. Watch, it it gets me outside. Stream. 
It gets me outside. And I love that the on-off switch on it is just a picture of the stars. So it's like if the light is off, you're off. And then there's a little star and like a moon. And it's like, you want to track the stars? Turn it to the star. You want to track the moon? Turn it to the moon. It's like, it just, it's so easy. And I really like that about it. Yeah. All right. Well, great. All right. Well, I, uh, I hope this has helped you guys uh, listening to maybe get your head around what some of these mounts are and maybe sort of simplify some of the terms for you and what to really look for in uh, a halfway decent mount. You're going to want something sturdy and that's mounted to the ground, something that is uh, easy to use or at least well machined so that it doesn't vibrate too much. And there's lots of styles to pick from there. So we hope this has helped you a little bit understand the world of mounts. We We'll be talking about them many, many times in future episodes, so don't worry about that. And so on behalf of Dustin Gibson, I'm Tony Darnell. I want to thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com. <laughs>